Last Wednesday, we went through Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And there's just really, I really felt that I need to do a series on heaven. And um, the Bible has a lot to say about heaven. I think last week I mentioned the word heaven is recorded in just the gospel of Matthew alone 66 times in Matthew alone. A lot of those are connected to the kingdom of heaven is likened unto. So, but it still talks about the kingdom of heaven. Heaven's reign in our lives. Heaven's authority in our lives. Um, I, I really think that we probably don't put as much emphasis on the Lordship of Christ um, as we do. Uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what does that work out? You will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and that's not just words. This is like saying your master, your Lord, because that matters. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, Bill Clemens mentioned something in Primetimers uh, Saturday. And, um, you know, I was like, well, I, I've never heard that. So if, I, if I've never heard something, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. So I researched it. But he said, you know, they have found neurons in the heart tissue. In the heart itself, they have found neurons. The same cells in the brain they have found in the heart. Well, I was a little skeptical. I nodded my head, you know. And I didn't say, that's crazy. I don't believe that. <laughs> but I researched it and I, and I read to to Jim in after our greeters meeting, the prayer meeting. And um, it said the heart has like a heart brain within it made up of 40,000 neurons. And that it has a way of feeling, sensing, and remembering. And that the heart brain communicates with the head brain back and forth. Now, you can, you can look it up and find it for yourself. And it kind of made sense that the Greeks looked at the cardia. You know, we know that's the blood pump, and we know that it's really associated with the soul and the, and the spirit. But undoubtedly, they were really onto something in their idea of certain things within the human body has certain properties, and... And they really believed that the heart was the, the place where you made your decisions, where it was the volition that you would come to act upon something. And that kind of fits within what? Romans 10. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, Sunday morning, a helicopter crash took place in California, and you've probably heard about it. There's a lot of crashes not a lot, but that's, I think there was a, a tourist helicopter that crashed in Hawaii not long ago, but it was on the news. When Brenda 
hear something like that because I've always wanted to go up in a helicopter with her at the Grand Canyon. Uh, we'd see something like that. We ought to go in the helicopter. Now, I'm not riding in any helicopter. And so when she heard about that helicopter crash, she said, that's why I'm not riding in a helicopter. I said, it's safer than driving in a car. The odds are. I'm seeing them. I'm not impressing any of you for helicopters. But Kobe Bryant was on that helicopter. And that changed everything. Stunning news. Sad news. And his daughter, 13-year-old daughter, Gianna was also in among the casualties. Um, and they left his wife and three other uh, children. There was a husband, wife, and daughter, the Altabellis, John and Carrie and Alyssa Altabellis, that died in that crash. They left behind a son and a daughter. Sarah and Peyton Chester, a mother-daughter, died together in that crash. She had two 16-year-old sons that survived them. Christina Mauser, a coach, left behind a husband and three young children, the youngest one being three years of age. And the pilot, Era Zobalian, and uh, didn't give any information about any family or survivors or, or what his family constitution was. Death is not a foreign thing to us. We've lost loved ones. We've lost friends. We've attended memorial services. Um, there's that sense of finality that's just tough, isn't it? But in that finality is the stealing of our destination. That whatever, wherever we are spiritually is sealed by that taking our last breath. In his 2004 book titled Heaven, I don't know if you're familiar with Randy Alcorn. I follow him on Twitter, and he's written many, many books. But he is considered the most prominent scholar on heaven. And he wrote a book titled Simply Heaven. And he mentioned about the certainty of death. He said, right now, the, the mortality rate for people is 100%. Sometimes we fail to think about that. We don't want to think about that. But he's, in his calculation, again, this is 2004. I have no idea where he is drawing his information. But he said every second, three people die in the world. That's 180 every minute, 11,000 every hour, which means every day 250,000 people will either arrive at heaven or hell. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? The nine people on that helicopter, their destination was sealed. They arrived at one of those two places. Last week, as I shared from Revelation 4 and 5, it talks about the activity in the throne of God, before the throne of God. It's all about the throne of God. And we live in a day and time where heaven is kind of diminished and 
you know, it's 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 kind of like people are tinkering with it a little bit. Rob Bell, I don't know if your name stands out, but several years ago he pastored a church in Michigan, and he just came to the conclusion that there could not be a literal hell because God, a God of love, would never, never endorse eternal torment. And so he just dismissed the idea that there's a hell. And uh, he's not only pastoring, but he's going around and he's just kind of like, we need to rethink how we read the Bible. Not really read it literally. Uh, N.T. Wright, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a great scholar. Anglican bishop, a lot smarter than I am. He's uh, at St. Andrews. Um, he, he said this about heaven. He said, it's important. It's just that the New Testament is not terribly interested in it. He said, why would someone say that? It's because it's almost people are like letting the pendulum swing the other way that the pie in the sky, the, the, the joy of heaven maybe it's taken away from people's active responsibility on this earth of living every day for the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom of God into play in all of their relationships. Are you following me? So I think sometimes these pendulums start swinging back and forth, and somewhere there's in this room for us to have both, an accurate vision of heaven and, and a real sense of what does that mean now uh, what should be this emphasis? I think Dr. Wright is is right. I mean, I've listened to his podcast. He's a brilliant man, and that doesn't ex that doesn't define him completely. But it just when I hear someone kind of like diminish heaven, it's like why why would you diminish that? Because we're here like for a vapor. That's eternal. Whichever destination we arrive at, it, that's it. It's there's no, there's no recalculation for it. There's no recourse after that. So I think there ought to be a greater seriousness about how we look at heaven, how we think about heaven. Um, I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 7, because you have to go back to the ministry of Jesus. Like I said, in Matthew alone, the word heaven appears 66 times. And many of those times, it's Jesus using the word heaven. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. Jesus talks about two gates and two roads to take. I don't know what's called. Is this the microphone doing it or what? I'm not doing anything and it's still doing it. Let me, uh, I'm too OCD for this to keep going. Got all that activity in it. Hey, we may just exercise this lapel mic. Did I say that right? Exorcise. Not exercise, exorcise. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, 
and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. <clears throat> now, while heaven and hell is not mentioned per se in the statements, he's talking about there's two choices in life. There's a choice that's a wide gate, Broadway, do whatever you want to do, live whatever way you want to live. But the end, at the end of that is destruction. <clears throat> I don't think he's just talking about, you know, consequences here. He's talking about a finality of consequences. Because he even said over in Luke's version, this strive, strain to enter into that small gate, that narrow way, because while it's not the most traveled ways, few going to be there. He says, think about the destination, life and destruction. And you have this, um, some people call this a parable. I, you know, I think, I think that's stretching the thing parable in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. And the reason is because no other parable of Jesus tells he gives names to the participants there was a man there was this there was that but this is the one time he mentions a person by name <clears throat> that there was a, a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus if you're there in Luke 16 I'll just read that story because it really and this is Jesus talking about this this is not Luke giving his opinion on some. This is what Jesus is talking about. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades or hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus next to him. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the dip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime, remember when you had the opportunity, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Very telling statement in verse 31. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Boy, is there, is there a lot in that statement. 
that there is one that's been risen from the dead telling people what they need to do. This story kind of creates some questions as much as answers because here is a setting that Jesus is talking about where they can see across this great chasm from each other. Even though the man is in torment, but he's not so much in torment that he cannot think about his own failure and think about the regret and think about the concern of his five brothers that he's, if, if there's no help for him, at least send, send somebody to warn my brothers about this place. Maybe one of the worst things about hell is eternal regret and wishing certain things were different, not only for oneself, but for one's family. But here, here's the reality. It's a soul-searching reality that we're going to arrive at one place or another when we breathe our last breath. I, I've shared this with people that, you know, I, I, I prayed with a man who's in fourth-stage cancer, and I was told that he wasn't really, they weren't really sure if he was a Christian or not, but he, without me even talk, going there, he told me he was saved and he wasn't afraid to die and, but in a lot of those cases, you know, I remember looking at Mary Eaton and praying with her at the twilight of her life. And I said, you know, Mary, I, I could get to heaven quicker than you. Because I tell people the two most dangerous things that a person does is getting in a vehicle and getting on a highway and passing people about a yardstick away from you going about 80 miles an hour. And the other most dangerous thing we do is when we lay down at night and close our eyes and go to sleep. That whatever state we're in, when we do that, when we get in a vehicle, when we take, and we don't know, we could, heart attack or something sudden, we, we don't know. But we know this, that at that moment, there's nothing else left to do. And I think sometimes we are a little too casual for people in our family that we're not certain of and that we just think that one day they're going to step into that place of surrender that God's going to lead somebody to them. We ought to pray for that. But where is our strain where is, where is the, the push inside of us to say, I think I need to have a heart-to-heart talk with that person? Because if I got the news, if I got the news that they were killed in a car wreck, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And we live every day with some sense that we're gonna we're gonna have more. They're gonna have more time. We're gonna have more time. Everybody's gonna have more time. And the whole thing is today is a day of salvation. Nobody's guaranteed anything. And so Jesus is talking about the reality of two people dying and going to two separate places, and they cannot cross what's between them. And and I know what you know. Well, is that the way it is today? I, I have a feeling that something changed after Jesus died and rose again, that he, he took those in Abraham's place with him into glory. Some of this is not really clear, but 
it seems as though Jesus is saying clearly that there's two separate places and they are permanent. It's sealed. Let me take you to a familiar passage. It's in John 14. This is the night before Jesus would be impaled on a cross and be crucified. This is the night before, and he looks at his disciples and he says these words to them. John chapter 14, start of the chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that? I am going, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that also that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then ensued a conversation but because they were trying to figure out what he was saying. But make no mistake, he said, I go to prepare a place, an actual place for you, a place for your future, a place that he says, I'm going to come back at some point and, re and take you to be with me, that where I am, I want you to be with me. I want you to be in the same place that I am. And at the end of Luke, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus gives his final instructions to his disciples. Matthew records the Great Commission. But then he tells them, you know, wait in Jerusalem till you're you know, due to the power from on high. And then he leaves, and they see him when he leaves. He just kind of starts going up until they can't see him anymore. So later on in Acts, that's, you know, right there in Acts 1, that happens. But in Acts 7, something happens that really kind of gives us another insight to heaven. And it's all about Stephen. Stephen is being targeted. He's being framed. And he gives this long, extended sermon about Israel's history leading up to who Christ is. And I'll just, this is one of the longest chapters in the book of Acts. In, in verse 54 of Acts 7, it says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. This is one of the places where heaven is mentioned. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to a place and I'm going to prepare a room for you. In my father's house are many rooms, but I'm preparing that place for you. Stephen gets a view of that. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus standing, the glory of God. He's standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Look at that again. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, just bear with me for a moment. 
I'm going to take you through some scriptures about where Jesus is. And we know he's at the right hand of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting there next to the Father as a high priest making intercession for us. That's where he is. That's where he's preparing a place for those who believed on him and trusted in him. Remembering that Paul, who would later have his own vision of Jesus, but not to the point to where he could kind of figure out what he was seeing, all he saw was a light that blinded him and words coming from that light. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? He says, who are you? He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He didn't have the same kind of view of Jesus that Stephen had, maybe because they were on two different planes. But nonetheless, Paul had that revelation of Jesus that changed his life. He became, instead of the enemy of the church, he became one of the greatest leaders of the church, wrote most more of the New Testament than anyone else. And so here's some of Paul's writings, and I'm also including some from Hebrews. I'm going to rapid fire this, so I'm going to give you the reference. You can write it down. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins with this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. What do you think things above means? Heaven. Not this world, but that world. Jesus even said it this way. Lay not treasures for yourself here, but lay, lay treasures up for yourselves in heaven where People can't rob that. They can't steal that. It, it won't rust away. It won't deteriorate. Everything you have here is going to stay here when you die. It's all breaking down. It's not going to stay new. It's going to get older and uh, more rusty and all of that. And he says, lay up for yourselves that in heaven where none of this tampers with it. And as he says, it set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where Christ is. Set your heart, your mind on where he's at, which is at the right hand of God in heaven. Here's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. This is Hebrews 1, 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and he had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The throne of God is synonymous with heaven. Hebrews 8.1. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Those words again. And in Hebrews 10, verse 12, this is Hebrews 10, 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, this is Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, he's talking about that this saves by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. There's activity there. 
And then in Revelation 5, 1 that I read last week, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of, who, of him who sat on the throne, this is God himself, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And shortly after that, he starts breaking those seals. But this is, this is an actual place. John sees an actual place, heaven. He sees someone sitting on a throne. In his right hand is a scroll, seven seals. Nobody can open the scrolls, break the seals. And all of a sudden, it's announced that there is someone worthy, the line of the tribe of Judah. And he, when he looked up, there's a lamb, uh, has evidence of being slain, but a lamb alive and powerful who has the right and the worthiness to take the scroll, and he starts breaking those seals. In Revelation 6, 9, he, he breaks the fifth seal. And when he breaks the fifth seal, you know, the first four seals are what? The four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fourth seal is the pale horse, which is death. The fifth seal opens up this revelation. This is the scroll, and this is what comes out of the fifth seal. John said, I saw... Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. I see souls of people who've been martyred. They call out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long are the people who martyred us are going to get away with it? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. They had been killed, but their souls are there, their spirits are there, they're alive, they're, they're waiting for their own resurrection, but they're also waiting for those who were responsible for their death to be judged. This is a... This is a the scene of the throne. And when you go into chapter 7, chapter 7, the seventh seal is not broken until chapter 8. But this is all after the sixth seal is open. There's a scene in heaven, and then there's 144,000 sealed from the nation of Israel, right? They're not Jehovah Witnesses. And he names 12,000 from each of these tribes. Dan is left out, and there's, I won't go into that. There's some speculation why. <laughs> but 144,000. And, and let me just, let me just let, stop right here. I, I don't think the devil cares if someone doesn't believe in heaven, but I believe he really cares about what people believe in heaven. And the two most dangerous cults to the Christian faith is the one that Charles Taz Russell established and Joseph Smith established. And the only similarity between those two cults is that they both deny that there is an eternal hell. There's no, there's no, that doesn't exist. The other side of the equation, heaven, is some of the most ridiculous stuff that you could think of that they're teaching. They say that 144,000 are Jehovah Witnesses. And that you only get in that 144,000 if you're really good at passing out watchtower. Now, I'm, I'm serious. 
It is a performance-based award that they attain by passing out watchtower and making visits. This is, this is how they get into the 144,000. The others are going to be here on this planet Earth when the kingdom is set up and they're going to be in charge. So there's a limitation in heaven. This is, this, that's their teaching. Mormons is, is really crazy. And I, I, I listened to um, a story about Josh and Susan Powell that Dateline has covered and podcasts had covered. And if you don't, just, just go and check it out. And, and, of course, Jason, in three days of traveling in a U-Haul, 26-foot U-Haul truck across the country, we listened to all, like, all ten parts of that podcast about them. But somewhere in the middle of that, I looked at him and I says, the reason that girl stayed in a dangerous situation is because of her religion. Her and her husband were Mormons. Both families were Mormons. They were married in the temple for time and eternity. And she was in a dangerous marriage with a, a crazy, crazed man that ended up pretty much killing her Never, they never really completely solved it, but they pretty much got close. And when they got close to him, he ended up, his kids, two kids were taken away from him because of all kind of junk. And on a supervised visit, he grabbed his two boys. They rushed, he rushed them into his house, locked the door of the social worker, and set his house on fire with his two boys. They never recovered her body, but they pretty much know that he, he did something with her. When she surmised that there has to be another man that really is, would be kind to her, she would go back to the point that they were married for time and eternity, meaning they would be husband and wife in heaven and they would continue to have intimacy in heaven and give birth to spiritual babies and raise a spiritual family, continue to have family building in heaven. That is what they believe. That you're not going to see that on Latter-day Saints advertising. But that was the corrupt mind of Joseph Smith. And that she even surmised, I, I think I could find someone, but Josh would probably still be my principal husband in heaven. Meaning she would be obligated to him. And um, it is it is a wacky... I, I think the most dangerous parts of those cults is what they teach about heaven because they gut salvation. They completely take away what's really salvation. And I think this is why the enemy doesn't... He, he, these, are demonic, these are demonic alternatives to Christianity. There's no doubt in my mind that if Satan can create anything that teaches us something different than the truth, he's okay with that. Go for it. But when you read this, when you read this, it's a whole different thing about heaven from what they teach. And and I'm I, just, I love talking to Jehovah's. We should witness to them. We should witness to Mormons. We should we should tell them the truth. We should share the truth. And I've I've had a chance to witness to the the elders that go around as missionaries. You know, that wear white shirt tie and you know, I love talking to them. 
and they they will let you pray with them, but Jehovah's Witnesses won't let you pray, you know. But we need to witness to them because they've been fed something that's catastrophically bad. And if we know the truth, if we believe the truth, if we believe, if we don't believe that, if we believe this to be the truth, aren't we obligated? It's kind of like Jehovah's Witness when after someone shared the gospel with them says, listen, if you really believe that, why aren't you knocking on my door instead of me knocking on your door? And it does say something to us about the responsibility we have. If we're working around people and they're not saved and, and we know they're not saved or we pretty much assume they're not saved just by, you know, the outward evidence, what would we think if they were killed in an accident or something and we just, we just never got to that point of sharing the gospel with them? Don't you think that we are, it, it's incumbent upon us to share this? And not to assume that a nephew, a niece, a cousin, or, or somebody, an uncle, or aunt, or, or anybody, or a friend, or a neighbor, or whoever it is, that we take, we take the risk of sharing the gospel. Or, or just asking God, Lord, give me an opportunity. This is what you find in Revelation 7. This is also the, the, a view of heaven, what's going on in heaven. And I'm not sure if, if this is a preview that he's getting or if this is actual activity that he is seeing right then, right there, currently in heaven going on. I'm okay either way. Revelation 7, 9, I'll finish up with this. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language. Sounds like those are people in heaven, not in soul sleep, actively engaged in heaven. <laughs> They're doing stuff. I'll I tell you, there's some things about heaven I'm going to share. And, and, and if you really want to get a book that will, you'll sit down and you'll find yourself having a hard time to put it down randy alcorn's book on heaven it's real it's it's very reasonable you can find a really inexpensive copy it says they're standing before the throne before the lamb and they are wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands they're they're having the time of their life it is not boring they're not wondering what are we going to do next this is getting old <laughs> Not saying that at all. The crime of level was salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Angels standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, they fall down. It's kind of like there's this motion set in by the people who really know what salvation is. Angels don't know what salvation is. They don't have any idea of being lost and then saved. When there was a rebellion in heaven. The angels were dismissed that joined in that rebellion. There's no salvation for them. But when they hear people really who have tasted of salvation and have now in the, they're in the presence of God, who is their salvation, they fall down on their faces before the throne. They worship God. They said, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. How about that little quiz going on? 
Do you know who they, these are people are? No, you know. These are those who've come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night, even though there's no night there. <laughs> Continually, I think is what he's saying. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Just kind of gives you an idea. You mean we might be engaging in eating and drinking something? Well, if you really see that place, there's trees with fruit on it and there's a river of life flowing through there is going to be great. And he says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat them down, nor any scorching heat. It's kind of like talk about climate control. And for the lamb is at the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's heaven. Now, there's a lot of questions we have about heaven, but it's hard to read that and not say, so that's what's going on. Um, I'm going to deal next week on why is the all creation groaning to taste the redemption that we've enjoyed. And what about all of that? You know, I remember telling the Cook's Pest Control guy when he came out to spray my yard and my female boxer, D was not doing really well. And he was scared to death of her. I don't know why she wouldn't hurt anyone. But she was kind of moping around in the front yard, and he says, what, what's wrong with her? And I said, well, she's not doing good. I think she's on her last journey here. And I decided to have a little fun with him. I just was looking at my little pet, my dog, and I said, but it's okay. She's a Christian. She's a Christian dog. She loves the Lord. And I could see him looking at me. <laughs> We're standing there, and I'm looking, I'm just looking at Dee. I said, she, she really has a good heart. I don't doubt for a moment where she's at. And I look at him, and he's like, do you need some help? He didn't say it, but his eyes were like, um, seriously? But there is a question. There's a lot of people that just want to believe that their pet is in heaven. Well, what is God's plan for animals in the afterlife? We're going we're gonna to touch on some of this on Wednesday night. We do know this, whether there's any other, and it says, oh, that's just an analogy or whatever, that he sees Jesus coming down out of heaven on a white horse. So there's horses. Who knows? And there's a bunch of horses coming out of heaven. Hey, this is looking up. Heaven will not be boring. It's going to 
blow our doors off, whatever that would be like in heaven. So, but, but I really feel compelled to encourage you after thinking about nine people Sunday morning went to their eternal destination, either in heaven or in hell. I, I did hear that <clears throat> Kobe Bryant and his daughter went and had communion at their church Sunday morning before they boarded that helicopter. And that he had, you know, made a move toward the Lord and, and uh, to be faithful to that. <clears throat> but I tell you what, if we have any doubt about people in our lives that are close to us, where they stand with the Lord, we need to, we need to really ask God to help us to get past our hesitation and have a heart-heart talk with them and pray with them, pray for them. And really, if somebody gives me permission to pray for them, it is on. And when I get a chance to pray with Jehovah Witnesses, if they let me, oh, yeah. I, I pray, I don't pray and, and to be antagonistic. I want them to know that Jesus died on the cross for them. And that he was raised from the dead. No matter what Charles Taz Russell said, you know, you got them saying that he, he, he didn't, he, he didn't, he wasn't raised from the dead. That was just like a spirit. He wasn't physically raised from the dead. It, when we have a chance to pray with anybody, we ought to pray the gospel over them it's on I've yet to have anybody to interrupt me talking to God and said hey buddy I don't like what you're praying for so far I haven't had anybody brass enough to say hey 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 stop <laughs> you're getting way too personal here but don't you think that we need to nudge them at least some way toward the Lord if they're a member in our family or they're a close friend, it's like, hey, I just want you to know, uh, you know, my brother hated me saying anything toward any any way associated with the, the Lord or he just would go off on me. But, man, I was, I'll take my lumps just to remind him that Jesus loves him. Let's stand together.